This has been the craziest campaign in history. The campaign narrative has gone from inane to profane. You're a jerk. Well, you're a bigger jerk. No, you're a blank, blank jerk. More than anything else on the streets these days, it's that they just feel disgusted, grossed out by the state of our electoral politics. This is the, I would say, the lowest, least honorable uh, political campaign I've seen in 35 years. Welcome to Special Relationship, a podcast from Mike and The Economist. I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. And I'm John Prado from The Economist. It's been a long election season and a strange one. The major candidates started jumping into this race about a year and a half ago, and it's been a roller coaster ride ever since. There's no question about it. The 2016 presidential election is one for the history books. But when it gets there, it'll have plenty of company. To quote the Smiths, though, is it really so strange? Sure, we've had an FBI investigation into the email habits of the Democratic nominee, Hillary Clinton. We've had a string of women accuse the Republican, Donald Trump, of sexual assault. We've had speculation about the links between the Republican nominee and the Kremlin. So all of that is really something. But consider this. In 1920, notorious socialist Eugene Debs made his fifth run for president from prison. In 1800, the House had to break up an electoral college tie between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. And in 2000, of course, the Supreme Court called it for George W. Bush over Al Gore, two months after one of the closest elections in U.S. history. Joining us now via Skype to discuss the strangeness of this election is Ken Rudin, also known in the radio world as the political junkie. He's not only an authority on American elections, but one of the country's foremost collectors of campaign memorabilia. Ken, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. And I think the campaign memorabilia is far more important than my knowledge. Thank you for pointing that out. Well, we're about to find out. First thing I want to ask you, is this actually one of the strangest presidential elections America has ever had? Or do you think it just feels that way because we're living through it. No, no. You know, everybody, you know, every four years we always say, wow, we've never gone through an election like this. And we do always say that. But this election is different from the moment Donald Trump came down those escalators, you know, in June of 2015. This was just a bizarre election, a surreal election. Uh, the charges back and forth, the meanness, the severity, the the ugliness, the I mean, you know, it's just everything that we've never seen before we've seen in this election. And even and, and I'm still not convinced that it ends on November 8th. Either one side won't accept the results or or the, the battles will continue. The uh, almost like 2000 that never ended until December uh, with the floor with the Supreme Court deciding. But this is worse because I think this is split the country in more than two. This is unleashed a force of, of div- divisiveness and intolerance almost that I don't think we've seen in in maybe perhaps not in recent history. So, Kent, just focusing on the really big issues for a moment, how has this election been in terms of campaign memorabilia? Well, you know something, there's always been great negative campaign buttons. And, and you know, I think one of the best ones was, of course, I mean, if you go back to 1928 when Al Smith, the first Catholic running for president, uh, the Republicans put out a button and said, we need a Christian in the White House, as if Al Smith was not uh, a Christian because he was Catholic. Uh, 1940, when, when FDR was seeking a third term, there were some fantastic anti-Roosevelt buttons, uh, no third termites. 
was one of the buttons and things like that. So that was always a lot of fun. But, you know, and you always say, you know, Bush sucks and Kerry sucks and all those kind of things. But this is absolutely nasty, uh, nastier than I've ever seen it before. And I think um, it's reflected in campaign buttons. So as far as it being nasty, have you seen anything that's that's come close? I mean, you've covered and studied a lot of elections. I mean, does this does this rank anywhere near something else or just completely on a planet of its own? No, I think this is the ugliest ever because you have a candidate who spent his career being nasty and getting and doing what he wants and saying what he wants. And the media and everybody have laughed it up, loved it. I mean, I think one of the reasons so uh, there was a record number of Republicans in the primaries, a record number of, 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 of viewers to the debates was that Donald Trump was a never seen before candidate. I mean, we've had non politicians run for president before. Uh, Ross Perot is a good example, the independent who ran in 92 and again in 96. But Donald Trump has been an outsized personality, somebody who has spent his life either doing what he wanted to do, doing what he wanted to do with women, um, being married three times, and all the things he said during this last year and a half, all the things that would have uh, destroyed candidates in the past, he gets away with it. He's gotten away with it. Every time he crosses a line or we think he's crossing a line, be it about women, about about Megyn Kelly, about Carly Fiorina, about Rosie O'Donnell, about John McCain, about the Khan family, I mean, oh, about Miss America, Miss Universe, I should say. Every time he says something, we say, OK, this time he's crossed a line when he when he mocked that disabled New York Times reporter. OK, this time he'll pay the price. He hasn't so far. In the past, things he said would have damaged, if not destroyed, a candidate. Uh, This time, it just has not happened. And I don't know if it's because of the anger and the intolerance that's among the American in the American electorate, or the fact that we are so sick and tired of losing jobs, watching jobs getting uh, being uh, shipped overseas, watching the beheadings on behalf of ISIS around the world, a homegrown terrorism in Orlando or San Bernardino, whatever it is, there's a feeling out there that whatever it has we've had so far is not working. And how worse could it be with Donald Trump? And I think that explains some of the just outrageousness we've seen in this campaign. Just thinking about the way Trump talks about politics, he said a lot of things in this election campaign that previously were thought to be unsayable by a major political party candidate. Do you think that if he loses and and if he goes from kind of frontline politics, do you think our, our political language will revert to how it was before? Or do you think it's more likely to stay more profane and, and Trumpy? John, that's a great question. I've thought about the same thing uh, for, for the last couple of weeks. And I think we don't know the answer because I kind of think that maybe you could say, well, Donald Trump is an outlier. This will never happen again. But I suspect the Republican Party that we once knew, remember, this Republican Party going into 2016 was supposed to be a Jeb Bush Republican Party. That those that kind of politics, I don't think works anymore. I don't think I don't think the voters can will take it anymore. I don't think they'll do politics as usual anymore. I think, you know, the, the way that John Boehner tried to run things in the House and now Paul Ryan tries to run the House, the way Mitch McConnell tries to run the Republican Party in, in the Senate. I think there's just a, a, an impatience out there that may say, OK, we've tried this for years. We've tried it your way. It's not working. And when Donald Trump talks about making America great again, uh, uh, bringing jobs home, uh, rebuilding those industrial states that perhaps may be long gone, the jobs in the industrial states like Ohio and Pennsylvania, 
vote is still expected to happen. So I kind of think that the, 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 the anger that the Trump campaign has unleashed, and when I talk about anger, I'm talking about also intolerance and, and vitriol, things we have not seen in the past. I don't think that disappears on November 8th. I mean, I know they're already talking about should Hillary Clinton win. They're talking about impeachment hearings on January 21st. I'm sure that's you know kind of a hyperbole, but who knows? Remember the famous quote that uh, the Democrats love to remind us of that Mitch McConnell said from the beginning he wanted to make uh, Barack Obama a one-term president. There was intransigence among the Republicans when Obama came into office in 2009. But I just think that whatever happens on November 8th, but assuming Hillary Clinton wins, I think it'll make 2009 look like a, a day in the park. I really think that the anger and ugliness and the bitterness that we have in the last couple of weeks in this 2016 campaign is not going to disappear anytime soon. Sort of on a related note, and not to be too navel-gazing, but this campaign may change the way people think about politics and elections. Do you think it's going to change the way we cover politics and elections? There's been a lot of criticism from the media, much of it admittedly from Donald Trump, although I don't think uh, Hillary Clinton has a warm and fuzzy relationship with the press either. Um, do, do you think this is possibly a watershed moment for how we write and think about politics? That's another great question, because remember, in the beginning, it, it was almost like, you know, like uh, Donald Trump was this celebrity candidate and we couldn't get enough of him. And he would say things that were so outlandish and often so untrue. And yet there was nobody fact checking him because they said, wow, this is great. This is great for ratings. Just talk to I mean, Jeff, look at Jeff Zucker and CNN. His is um, uh, the ratings have I know, quadrupled, I guess. They hire people like Corey Lewandowski, the former uh, campaign manager for Trump, because they feel that brings more eyes to the TV. It's just remarkable. And then only after he got the nomination, when the, the media said, what have we done? What have we allowed to happen? Suddenly there's now... We're using the L word. We are calling them lies. We all call. We are calling them outlandish and outrageous and bigoted. And so, all the smiles the media had about the coverage uh, in the early part of the early going of the campaign, I think, has become much more critical. And uh, in, in the last couple of weeks, and now, does the Ameri do the American people? support that change in the media? That's a good question because the 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 view of the, I mean, we I saw a video this week where where this 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 anti-Semitic rant uh, by a person at a, a Trump rally was directed at the media, the Jew-controlled media. I've seen that on Twitter. I've seen that on Facebook. I've seen it on YouTube. The anger towards the media is perhaps unparalleled. Remember Spiro Agnew in 1969 talking about the, you know, the, the, the biased media. That doesn't even compare to the, the anger and the, uh, the hostility I've seen in 2016. And I suspect that there's going to be a lot of self-awareness or at least a, a, a recalculation of how the media covers campaign, because what I've seen right now is just not, I mean, just absolutely intolerable. Can you can see elements in Trump's candidacy that are old, that look back to American populisms of the early 20th century, the late 19th century. And you can also see some things that are in new in his candidacy, you know, his experience on reality TV being put to good use, his uh, understanding of how you use social media to influence what people are talking about. Do you think if we look at politics in 10, 20 years time, do you think that Trump will have kind of 
given us a window onto the future of how politics will be conducted? Or do you think he's more of a throwback? I mean, I, I hate to sound like a John Kerry uh, yes and no kind of answer, but really there's no way of knowing that because, you know, we, we've seen – I remember after the 1964 campaign and Barry Goldwater wound up winning only six states and everybody said, well, we're never going to see a Republican Party like that anymore. And that wasn't necessarily true. Two years later, the Republicans did well in the 66 midterm elections and Nixon won in 68. After McGovern, George McGovern, lost 49 states in 1972, they say, well, we'll never have a candidate like that again because the Democrats are, are finished. And of course, two years later came Watergate and two years after that came Jimmy Carter. So every time we think, well, we've learned a lesson, we're not going to see candidates like that anymore. We're proven wrong. This time, it's hard to see an establishment, Jeb Bush, uh, uh, John Kasich, Marco Rubio kind of candidate winning over this impatient Republican voter voting uh, a populace, especially if Hillary Clinton wins, which would be the third election on the row for the Democrats. And the Republicans say, look, we have the issues on our side. Our borders are porous. I mean, our economy is in trouble and we're electing another Democrat. So, so either they'll say, well, Donald Trump's uh, approach was wrong and we'll go back to the establishment. But I, I suspect that the voters will be so angry that either Donald Trump or another Trump-like figure could very well be the nominee in 2020. I can't believe we're talking about 2020 already. So, Ken, obviously Trump has been a big part of why this election has been so astounding in so many ways. But on the other hand, we do have the first female nominee of a major party. She's making her second attempt at the White House. She's been under uh, FBI scrutiny for her private uh, you know, a private server, her emails. There's all this drama going on now with, uh, you know, reopening some of those inquiries having to do with uh, Huma Abedin and her husband, Anthony Weiner. I mean, I, I'm not sure that we can attribute all the unusual aspects of the campaign just to Donald Trump, right? No, I agree. And it's interesting. We talk about the history that's in the making here, the possibility of the first female president in American history. And yet, if you look at what voters don't like about Hillary Clinton, it's pretty close to what they don't like about Donald Trump. With Hillary Clinton, they don't trust her. They've had, they, they don't like her approach to things. The progressives always feel that she comes kicking and screaming to when she has to move to the left on the war in Iraq, on same-sex marriage, on, on, on oil pipelines, on trade deals. So it just seems like you think of all these advantages that she would have in running against a Donald Trump, but there's a lot of hesitation among many voters, and not because they're part of the right-wing conspiracy or they're part of the conservative movement, but they just feel they just don't trust her. And this latest focus on emails, whether it's legitimate or not, whether the FBI finds anything or not, uh, it just goes to prove what voters have said about Hillary Clinton from the beginning, that, they, that even though there's history in the making here, there's something that just doesn't feel quite right. And, you know, she doesn't have the political smarts that her husband does, that Barack Obama does, that, that Ronald Reagan did. And, and, and she suffers because of it. But um, look, clearly the, the, the controversies about Hillary Clinton are not going to end, win or lose on November 8th. And I suspect that we're not going to go through a very happy 100-day period, uh, you know, the, the, the welcoming period uh, after her election and inauguration. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Celeste, and thank you, John. You can subscribe to Ken Rudin's program, Political Junkie, on iTunes or by going to krpoliticaljunkie.com forward slash subscribe. 
Coming up, we'll take a look outside America and at what goes on the other side of the Atlantic for more ghosts of strange elections past with The History Guy. Joining us now to take the long view of the 2016 presidential election is Dan Snow. You may know him from his very fine podcast, History Hit. He's the history guy on Twitter. He's also got an excellent show out on the BBC on the gold rush, the California gold rush. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast. It's great to be on it. So there's a general consensus talking to Americans and American historians that this one is the kind of craziest on, on most measures that people have seen in the history of the US. What about if you look outside the US? Are there elections that match it? Well, it's very fashionable for people outside the US to poke fun at the Americans, to laugh at them, to, to, to say that their electoral system is kind of primitive. And, and we're jealous of the Americans. We, we look down on them. They're, they're the newcomers. Uh, their republic is, is not as old as some of the older uh, countries in, in Europe and beyond. However, I'm here to say to the Americans, you, it's not that bad. We have got some insane elections right across, even, I mean, obviously, you know, in the developing world, obviously, our electoral politics is pretty crazy. We all know that. But even in more established uh, Western democracies, it's pretty insane as well. And I've just picked out some examples through history of, of, of kind of pretty grotesque elections. And, and whilst I do think what's going on in the States is pretty unprecedented at the moment, it shouldn't, you shouldn't forget that there's a lot of precedents out there for insanity. Human beings are crazy. We have the capacity to uh, behave extremely irrationally and strangely around elections. And, and elections, it's fair to say, have usually brought out the worst in us. Um, I mean, there's one election I was thinking about. This is a kind of brutal one. Um, it's, it's March 1933. You've got Hitler uh, really stamping his authority on the last election that Hitler ever bothers to fight. And, and what you get is, is terror, uh, huge amounts of propaganda. You get repression. You get massive amounts of voter intimidation. Uh, and you get Nazi organizations monitoring the voting process. And that's why people have been so alarmed by some of the rhetoric coming out of the Trump camp. It, it's very un unpleasant reminders of, of, of tactics used by fascists uh, throughout history to suppress the vote and intimidate the opposition. Um, I mean, on a slightly lighter note, I guess and, uh, the the famous election that I think we should bring up now is that that papal election of twelve sixty eight seventy one. I'm sure you're both thinking about that. Uh, the papal election, the longest in Catholic history. The, I'm just going to mention this one quickly because it's quite a funny. Uh, the cardinals well uh, couldn't come to a decision. They were locked in a room for a year with bread and water. Uh, and in fact, apparently, it's slightly unclear, but the the boss of the town they were meeting in actually removed the roof of the palace they were meeting and he wanted to hurry up this process so much. Three of them died, one resigned, uh, and eventually they came to a decision. Uh, and But you know what is particularly interesting about that one? is the chief magistrate of the town in which it was held. Uh, that, that position in medieval Italian was known as the Podesta. Now that's uh, got a contemporary resonance there as well. What a strange coincidence. I don't know. Do you think that has some sort of, uh, does that have some sort of secret meaning for, for what could possibly be going on here in our election? Well, I don't know. All I know is that the Podesta back then, just like the Podesta now, was probably writing on manuscript in, in invisible ink rather than sending any emails. I'll tell you that much. So what can you tell us about some interesting elections in the UK? I'm sure you have plenty of examples of, of things that are maybe not as wild as what's going on here right now, but maybe you can give us a run for our money. Well, listen, you, you have not seen anything compared to elections in the UK. I'll tell you that we have we've specialised, until quite recently, we recently developed this reputation as kind of staid and respectable and boring and conservative. 
until recently, we were wild. We were totally out of control. Uh, I mean, you've got to just think about I mean, the election of 1784 when Pitt took on Fox, two of the great titans of the 18th century, the, the Jefferson-Adams clash of the day. Uh, Fox had got the Duchess of Devonshire, the most kind of beautiful, glamorous aristocrat of the day. She'd go around uh, exchanging kisses for votes. There was voter intimidation. There were riots. There were burning down people's houses. Uh, that, and there was bribery. Bear in mind, in Britain, we've only had a private ballot since 1872. So we haven't even had a private ballot that long. So before then... People, people could vote, had to vote openly, and you simply exchanged your vote for money. So pe- votes were bought and sold, people were beaten up, people were, were chased around town if they, if they voted the, in a way that the, the mob didn't approve on. So, so, of, of. so I, I think we have a, a, a great, well, bizarre tradition in, in the UK of, of electoral insanity. And actually, that continues right up until the present day. And again, we're all, we like to, we, we like to be a bit snide. I think we like to be dismissive of, of the Americans. But hey, we just had a Brexit referendum here where the lies and propaganda was out of control. I mean, it was insane. We had members of the same party turning on each other, delivering personal insults on live TV. One MP, one member of parliament was shot. Joe Cox was shot in the street. And this is a country in which there are very, the gun ownership is a tiny, tiny proportion of that in the US. So I don't think we've got anything uh, to be to be lecturing uh, the Americans about. Let's not forget also in, in the 1970s, one very senior political leader was actually had to resign following his indictment for, uh, a te- well, conspiracy to murder an unacknowledged gay lover. So, you know, we we are not as as staid and mature, I think, as as sometimes as people think. And, you know, I mean, I'm just suddenly thinking now I'm talking, we've got 1964, George Brown, deputy leader of the Labour Party. He was wildly intoxicated wherever he went. He, 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 um, he got in a physical fight once during a, a battle for the, the leadership of the Labour Party, uh, which equivalent, I suppose, to the Democrats here in the UK. Uh, he made several mistakes on, on stump speeches. One, at one stage, he appeared to say that he reduced interest rates by 3% in one go. Uh, his kind of um, sparring partner, if you like, Quinton Hogg, the Conservative, um, used to smash up Labour posters with his walking stick. And the Prime Minister in, in that election in 64 was uh, virtually assaulted during a meeting in Birmingham. So things are pretty rowdy here as well. Is it right, Dan? I think I'm right in saying that George Brown, whilst drunk, once asked a cardinal to dance, mistook a, a, car, a cardinal <laughs> in his robes for a, for a woman at a party and asked him to dance. Well, yes, I think that is that is true, apparently. But I mean, he proves the kind of almost that we, we got a politician here called Boris Johnson. You got, you got Donald Trump over there. There's what there is clearly a point at which you break through the gaff barrier, and then nothing seems to matter anymore. You can do whatever you like, and people just think it maybe perhaps it's a bit charming. So I'm finding all of this sort of precedent finding very reassuring, oddly reassuring on the eve of the election. It's somehow a kind of comforting thought to think that we're not in some sort of complete break with the past, and um, but also. I mean, at some points, history does change, doesn't it? And those points are kind of hard to spot while you're sort of in them in real time. But then historians look at them in retrospect and say, ah, you know, that was a turning point. Do you think this election might be one of those? Oh, listen, I think so. And in fact, sometimes you you know you're in the middle of history. I think in 1906 in the UK, you had an election where you'd seen a, a dominant conservative party, quite a reactionary conservative party, aristocratic conservative party, hanging on for a long time. And it was swept away by this landslide liberal victory that would then form the administration that would go on to really lay the foundations of a modern welfare state here in the UK, move the political centre a long way 
uh, to the left, if you like, uh, helped to break the power of the hereditary aristocracy, arguably even the monarchy in the UK. Uh, I think, you know, I think, funnily enough, the, the Bush-Gore election in 2000, I think we all felt at the time it was historic. If the Democrats could lock lock down the presidency, given the demographic changes that, change that we knew were occurring, uh, climate change we forget back then, Al Gore was a huge climate change advocate, uh, you know, a, a dealing with climate change advocate, George Bush wasn't. We all felt at that time that this could be four to eight years of of a, a pretty important, and, and you know we we were right, but we didn't even know how right we were. I mean that was of course a historic election uh, because of what happened in the election itself and what happened uh, afterwards, nine eleven and and the wars that followed that. So I think sometimes you do know when you're in a, a, a historic uh, election. This one feels like one. Uh, it, it feels like. Uh, because of the because of the kind of rhetoric that Trump has mobilized, the kind of people that Trump seems to have mobilized with his nativist, basically nationalist uh, rhetoric. Of course, it's too soon to tell how how historic it might be. It might be. I think down ballot races are really important. Uh, people here in the UK aren't really across the down ballot thing. I mean, I, it's something as a total political geek. I am I am almost more interested than in than the presidency. And I think if Hillary was able to pull off an unlikely down-ballot win, then it really could be a hugely historic election. From all the stories that you've told us, I mean, well, first of all, I'd like to ask, where do you think that uh, Trump versus Clinton 2016 will sort of fit into the, the pantheon of, of truly wild elections that you've studied or, or read about or written about? I mean, are, are we kind of are we kind of low? Are we kind of low on the on the uh, on the poll here? Well, I think we are pretty low. I mean, there's two things. There's I guess it's an important thing to remember that there's a rhetorical divide, which which we see in the UK. And I think we've seen in elections, early 20th century elections in the US, which is when both sides are saying really pretty horrible things about each other, particularly in the UK. We have got we had a very, very dominant right wing tabloid press here in the UK with an extraordinary reach. You know, Fox News in the States goes out to a few million people. We had tabloid newspapers here in the 90s, the 80s and 90s that went out to, you know, a huge chunk uh, a plurality, you know, big, big number of uh, of the British people, and they were incredibly vitriolically anti Labour Party. So, so we've seen this kind of rhetoric. But, but what's interesting about the US is that is it doesn't seem to be any more that this is this is working on a rhetorical level, but actually secretly uh, people are actually dating. Like if you look at uh, George H W Bush and and Bill Clinton's campaign team, you know, there, there was like romantic relations going on between them. It, it felt like a kind of a cosy thing. Um, and, and I think what's, what if, if in DC, if, if you're what you're seeing in the US at the moment is, if this rhetoric is actually real, if, if, if Trump follows through with his threats not to recognise the results of the election, if he, if uh, threats against, um, perhaps, perhaps the rhetoric can stir up violence towards the um, politicians, as we've seen over the last years, or perhaps Muslims or Mexican-Americans, that then, then actually this would be very, very, this would rank really low. This would be a real low point. It may be, however, this is all kind of tabloid froth and actually the, the Republican mainstream manages to sort of win back control over, over, its, over its rowdy wing. And in fact, we, we continue with a slightly more consensual politics. So it's tough to say. So Dan, we're talking about the great sweep of history. Uh, and of course, democracies with universal suffrage are a relatively recent invention. And if you look at a lot of the polling, there are lots of people in America, particularly young voters in America, millennials born since 1980, I think a quarter of them actually say that democracy is a bad system. Um, what's your take on that? 
Well, I think that's one of the most disturbing things to come out of the, this election. Those figures, both in, in the US and throughout Western Europe, are, are, are very, very disturbing. Uh, young people, I think, have got so comfortable in, in this democratic era. It's been now a couple of generations since we faced this ex- a real existential threat to our way of life that they've forgotten that the democracy, the democracy is what absolutely underpins all that. And whilst some of these elections are unedifying, let me tell you, they are considerably better than the politics and the insanity that surrounds uh, the transfer of power from a father to a son, um, or let alone from from a def- you know a, 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 from a defeated king to his successful uh, adversary. So, so in in most societies in most times of history, uh, transition of power has been an appallingly dangerous, turbulent, and, and at a time of grave discontinuity. Even though this is a messy, unpleasant, and and occasionally totally bizarre process. I can tell you what, American election 2016 is going to be a lot better than most of the transitions of power in our history. So I don't think we should get too, get, get too downhearted. There's, there's things that need fixing, but don't throw out the entire system. Dan Snow is a writer and broadcaster, man of many talents. You can find him on Twitter, at The History Guy. Dan, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. That was great. That's it for this week. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We were produced by Alan Habachak. Thanks, Alan. And thanks to everyone who listens. If you want to help us out, you can do that by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I'm Celeste Katz with Mike and at Celeste Katz NYC on Twitter. I'm John Prado with The Economist or at John Prado on Twitter. See you next week when the election is over. Don't forget to vote. 